RehabCast, the official podcast of ACRM and the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, is sponsored in part by Shepherd Center. My name is Zach Bradley. I'm a current employee and former patient of Shepherd Center, which specializes in medical treatment, research, and rehabilitation for people with spinal cord injury, brain injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, spine and chronic pain, and other neuromuscular conditions. Our specialized clinicians serve as complex care partners. They collaborate with medical professionals who refer their patients to Shepherd Center to help them achieve optimal outcomes, returning them to their homes, communities, schools, and workplaces. Learn more at shepherd.org. Welcome to the 40th episode of RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. In this podcast, we'll be learning from Tiago Jesus of Northwestern University and Christina Papadimitriou of Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, on their work elucidating the person-centered rehabilitation model, which is really a theme we see in the journal over recent years and also featured in this podcast before. Then we're going to delve into fascinating work at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center linking cognitive profiles to psychological well-being following spinal cord injury. Joining us now on the rehab cast, we have two guests, both co-authors on a paper entitled uh, The Person-Centered Rehabilitation Model, Framing the Concept and Practice of Person-Centered Adult Physical Rehabilitation Based on a Scoping Review and a Thematic Analysis of the Literature. To discuss this with us, we have Dr. Tiago Jesus, who is a uh, postdoctoral scholar in global health and tropical medicine at the University of Lisbon. Uh, and we also have uh, Dr. Christina Papadimitriou, uh, who is Associate Professor at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I know uh, this is a uh, this work, I like a lot of them, is, has been a long time coming. And uh, there's a, a paper dating back to uh, 2016 outlining this uh, plan uh, in uh, uh, BMJ uh, Open uh, at that time. Uh, the the concept, as I understand it, you guys certainly need to tell me, uh, is there's a lot of uh, lingo being bandied about and efforts in uh, incorporating the patient, i.e. the person, although there's some distinguish, uh, distinguishing characteristics between the two, and you guys prefer person-centered, uh, and we'll learn about why that is. Uh, and a lot of different efforts uh, uh, in uh, you know putting uh, the person slash patient where they should be at the center of the rehabilitation model, uh, but people coming at it in different directions and maybe defining this concept in slightly different ways. Um, and I gather your your hope is to uh, kind of uh, help help settle and, and classify this issue uh, some more. Tell us about uh, the background. Is that is that generally uh, uh, correct? Um, uh, and you know, uh, where do these ideas start to bubble up from? Kind of back in you know prehistory uh, to to where we are now, and now this effort in kind of delineating this. Um, uh, Tiago, if I could have you start with uh, with that question. 
Yes, uh, I can start with, with the answer to that question. Everyone talks about the patient-centeredness or person-centeredness or the needs to, to, to deliver rehabilitation health, healthcare in general or rehabilitation care in particular through a person's patient or person-centered approach. And everyone might have a wrong idea or a wrong understanding of what that means. And everyone uh, is eventually uh, tasked to do that in a certain way or to promote it in a certain way. But we eventually came to conclude that everyone speaks about it, everyone requires, but no one exactly determined what does it mean, either in concept or in practice. The actual title of the protocol as uses this expression, what exactly does it mean to be person-centered in concept and practice? And that was the challenge that, that we were facing five years ago. And it was a long road to come to this final product and comprehensively reviewing the literature to come to an understanding of what would person-centered rehabilitation entails in both practice and risk and in concept. And it, is, it was this particular challenge challenge to bring those issues together, the concept of the practice, and but also important to do so because the practice illustrates the concepts and the literature that we have reviewed provide ex illustrative examples of that illustration of those practices. And it was very important, although complex, to combine both the, the concept and the practice in the same paper. And that's, that's, that was the challenge. And one interesting issue is that Christina was not the initial set of authors which designed this, but that's a very interesting uh, issue about publishing protocols. It's that Christina saw our protocol reached out with the corresponding authors. We understand that there was a lot of common interests about developing this and important skills to be brought in. And, and that's it's a vivid example of uh, how to publish, for example, a study protocol can bring uh, eventually someone on board for enabling doing this important work. Definitely. Well, Christina, that, that's fascinating. So tell us about what drew you to this, uh, to this project so strongly. Uh, and would you couch the, this project in any other slightly different context in terms of its overall uh, importance or role in, in the rehabilitation sphere? Sure. So a lot of questions you just posed. So <laughs> let me see mm -hmm. what the best way to respond to them. Uh, when I read the scoping review that Tiago and his team at the time put out, it was very attractive to me to understand and to be part of this work because I understand myself as a scholar and a researcher who is interested in making uh, rehabilitation medicine more person-centered. I have a humanistic interest in making that possible. And so I have worked with CARF International and Chris McDonald in particular to try to understand what we called at the time client-centered practices in rehab, because Client. in the early uh -huh. 2000s, that was the expression. That's what we used. So, and as you know, CARF International is very interested in putting the person served in the center. So to me, reaching out to Tiago and his team was a very natural thing to do because it fuels the passion that I have to work in this area of person-centeredness. And what does it mean for rehabilitation? Mm -hmm. To pivot back to a question you asked earlier about person versus patient, I'm a sociologist by training. Oh, really? Okay. The word patient to me and throughout my training is a fairly passive word. It's a word that doesn't really give a lot of agency to the human who is at the center of care. 
with my interaction with CARF and their conceptual use of the words person served. And, and then the literature has been moving forward in this area, you understand, since the 60s. And there is a general dissatisfaction with using the word patient, though in the medical field, patient is still the preferred term. It's already changing. Right. New reports already, even from the medical field, has been replacing the term uh, patient-centered from the term person-centered. Just to acknowledge there is a person beyond, behind the patient. There is a lot more in, in that person. It's the singularities of the person, a new personality preferences and so on that goes beyond the, the patient needs to be respected and addressed by the approach. And that's why the term person-centered was briefer. And we, we had some discussions and we, and we had some resolutions on, on, on the framing up to the terminology that pleases us all. And for sure, this term person, it's a term that we repeated a lot of time in our paper. And even the, the, the first category that we provide, the first attributes, the person professional, it's, it's essentially around the issues of respecting the person uh, beyond the patient and being person-centered, it's, it's more than individualizing care plans to the patient. It's looking for uh, tailoring the whole international approach mm-hmm. that, that we have to the, the personality that is in front of us, the, the values, the meanings, etc. that goes, goes way, way beyond the unique patient. The unique patient, there is a unique person. Yeah, these titles that we give each other that we use in healthcare and all, all different fields fields of, of life, I, I suppose, even our personal lives, I mean, they, they carry with them a lot of deeper meaning and expectations or baggage seemingly associated with it. Uh, you label someone a patient. Well, you're expected to uh, to be in the patient role to kind of live up to the expectations of what it means to be a patient. Like you have uh, a certain role to play in this interaction, you know, the the provider, you know, has another role. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, uh, physicians and other other folks in healthcare prefer not to use that term provider. We don't want to be called by our, our individual profession, whether it be occupational therapist or physician and so forth. But uh, there's, you know, the, these terms that we use for each other uh, perhaps box uh, uh, people in. Um, and uh, maybe there's some aspects of that fulfilling a professional role or duty that are important to be precise. Maybe when it comes to something as complicated as uh, a new onset disability and its rehabilitation of what it means for you as a whole person, um, maybe that that box is is too confining. Yes, and the beauty about calling something a person-centered model is that the word person, at least as we have been looking into the literature and as we have been developing this model, involves the significant others and involves the caretakers and the caregivers of the care partners. Mm. So that is, as you see in our model, we, we focus on the three different levels, the dyad, but also the meso level and then the macro level, because it's very important to understand the dyad or right the provider person interaction, and then the teamwork and then the organizational piece. And all of that works together. When you only speak of a patient, it's as if they are in sort of some kind of vacuum all on their own. Nobody Mm -hmm. lives in a vacuum all on their own. 
and 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 also to reinforce that idea that both the provider and the person contribute to that idea then there is a relationship that is construed at their interaction and not only at the roles of the provider or the role of the patient there is a idea and a partnership there is established and a relationship that person centeredness it's about as well as then the team conditions and the organizational conditions for that to happen we indeed include all those dimensions in the model because they really need to be as we frame uh, addressed somehow at the same time because these elements interact with one another and it's more, way more difficult to try to be person centered at the end if the team does not work in in a person centered way or, in, or if the organization it's not designed or it's not designing its processes to for for care to be person centered and and that's why we think that this model could be very useful for uh, quality improvement projects because it can address different levels that impact the delivery of person centeredness and both at the diet level at the team level at the service organizational level and quality improvement activities can address each each one of those elements and sometimes combine them in meaningful interventions and that's one of the uses that we think this model can be a resource for helping those leading quality improvement uh, activities in, in the rotation field trying to have in this model the concept and examples of practice that they can involve but also all attributes combined with a meaningful way to try to understand the relationships among them do you all think there's something unique about the rehabilitation field and how how important it is to to uh, have this uh, form of conceptual thinking about uh, the person-centered model, given how participatory it is for the person, uh, the rehabilitatee, uh, uh, actively participating and doing uh, the rehabilitation versus, say, I mean, frankly, there are some other more transactional forms of medicine out there that, that we all know and use and are perfectly useful and so forth. I don't know to what extent this rubric is that important. I mean, you have uh, sudden appendicitis, go in, get your appendix out, technical procedure, do do well, just fine. I mean, I don't know what it matters how your surgeon interacts with you in that in that process or so forth. You got a rash, a dermatologist looks at it, uh, maybe puts it on a microscope or not, gives you the correct salve, your rash improves. I mean, it's just, you know, there's kind of technical transactional type medicine, but rehab is a little bit different. And, yeah, I, I guess that we understand that person-centered rehabilitation can be understood as the own rehabilitation. Is there is is there any other way mm. to eventually doing it? Because it can be in the very instance of, of what is rehabilitation of engaging a person, and and we address that in that in in our model. We have attributes focused on meanings and eventual life goals before rehabilitation goals being addressed. So, uh, and rehabilitation goals are instrumental for the person to eventually reacquire a life that it's meaningful to it. And, and most of our encouragements there, it's related with that. It's trying to find a meaning and provide mm-hmm. hope or a meaning of the future. It is as much as, as related to person-centered rehabilitation as it is for rehabilitation overall as eventually it could be framed. So uh, this is probably not a, a specific feature of rehabilitation, but eventually uh, something that it's probably entailed or required in the own framing of, of, of rehabilitation and, more, and probably more so than in other uh, healthcare fields, even though this is required in healthcare fields overall. As a practitioner, I'm, I'm a clinician. I'm a I was a occupational therapist for over a decade. 
decades, in addition to having also some training or doctoral training in, in health psychology. And really, our practice needs to embed this element, not as an additional feature or something that it's nice to have, but something that it's eventually part of the very definition of rotation practitioner. And trying to define that it's not just a side thing or a nice feature to, to include in rotation, it's, it's probably in the very essence of rotation. Mm-hmm. So physical medicine and rehabilitation is a very, on some level, very heterogeneous practice in the sense that it incorporates a lot of different kinds of populations, right? There are so many people who are going to see a physiatrist who are going to need rehabilitation services. So it's hard to sort of speak at what is the core of rehab sometimes. From my point of view, it is about habilitating. It is about mm. understanding the person who comes to you, who needs your services, who they are, what they have been through, what are their, what are, what are the things that define them and what are the things, what are the needs, right? For the kinds of services they're looking for. So what are their habits? What were their habits and what kinds of new habits can we in rehabilitation create, recreate, maintain, adjust, adapt, let go of, and how do we forge that life forward, whether that is because of an injury or an acquired disability, or whether we're speaking about chronic illnesses that, of course, have different trajectories and milestones and changes and differences as we age. So if it's if the goal is to habilitate, that by definition means that we have to understand who this person is and what their relationships in the world are, and how they understand themselves, their bodies, their abilities, their wishes, their desires, their hopes. So yes, even in rehabilitation, there'll be tasks to do, right? But unlike some of the examples you gave from a more acute care environment, in rehabilitation, unless you understand what is meaningful to the person and to the caregiver, I think you're missing the boat. I think you're missing a chance to really impact people. And the whole thing about rehab is that we are impacting people and it's not from three to four on a Wednesday and I don't see you again for a year, right? There is mm-hmm. chronicity. There is, there is a difference there. But yeah, because uh, li- life itself is, is the goal, you know, to go yeah. on, on living. Living and, and well, in a right? Way. We yeah. are yeah. now yeah. in a position to talk about living well and about well-being. Yeah. And so that's part, in my view, in the approach to doing things. So the other piece that I think is important about rehabilitation, it's, it's yes, rehabilitation needs to and should focus on outcomes, right? On measurable things that we can um, mm-hmm. see and show and prove that we have done to get people to be better. But it's also a process, right? So there is a process and outcome focus that we have to think about. And part of what we have tried to also do in this model is to make explicit both the conceptual and the practical, but we have been very careful not to create some kind of recipe by which people are then going to just take this model and say, oh, let's plug it in into whatever hospital in whatever part of whatever part of the world, and it's all going to work out. 
part of the goal of presenting this model is to say, here are the principles, as Tiago mentioned, here are the principles and the attributes of what we think makes for person-centered rehab. But we're not giving you, um, we're giving you sort of a general roadmap. We're not giving you sort of an, if you do the following 10 things, you're good to go, right? Yeah. I guess that I can add that this model intends to guide, not to dictate. And one of the elements of the guide, it's or one of the attributes of being person-centered, and that we have one attribute for that, it's to be adaptive, it's to be reflective, it's to adjust the approach for that particular person that is in front of you, to be attentive to the emotional cues that you have. So by the own definition of being person-centered, we could not provide a full recipe for doing that because by the own definition, there are different persons in which different approach would work differently. And we need to really adjust our approach and to learn over, over the course of the interaction with that approach. And that's something that Rehabilitation has. It's not a one-off consultation. And we need to really adjust and to try to, to understand what works best for, for that person, and not only in terms of care, but only in terms of the communication, the directional approach, whether the person wants to be known deeply or whether the, the person wants to be participating in care decisions uh, in the daily, day-to-day decisions or just in the rotation goals or setting rotation goals or just want to have a, a nice chat while an informal chat while the treatment is delivered. And, and, and none of that can work under a, a unique recipe. And we just try to provide the attributes for that. And one of the attributes is that it's the capacity to be adaptable to the, to the person in front of you. And that's probably the most challenging aspects of delivering person-centered rehabilitation um, and was and probably also one of the most interesting because it's subject to failure. You need to be very attentive to the person that you have in front of you beyond the computer screen to, to deliver a person-centered care approach. And we cannot, as researchers, think that we can provide a full recipe. For We can provide guidance. We can provide illustrative examples of the literature. We can show something that has worked in, in certain conditions, but we can provide a model that fully dictates what you need to do at each step, uh, each timing or in at each situation because part of the definition needs to be uh, adapted to the person and that's the the excessively guiding guideline did y'all come across any uh any kind of case uh studies or do you think that that would be um uh, if, if they don't exist um is that a, a good way to perhaps uh, communicate kind of what we're talking about here like you know here is kind of the, the cookie cutter approach uh to rehabilitating this problem here is how it changes and adapts uh, utilizing this person-centered, kind of more interactive, uh, next-level approach. And kind of vignettes, that type yeah. of thing. Uh, uh, being uh, technically proficient and, and being uh, highly skilled uh, in the evidence that exists, it's also important for a person patient-centered approach because you want to provide patients with options and alternatives and etc. We need to know about those alternatives and what has worked in science, but you then you can't apply directly to to it's it's more than effective care. It's what they now call appropriate care. 
it whether different levels of effectiveness or what was once called the, the evidence-based medicine or, or approach can really fit that particular person with, and that needs to be to be learned at each time with with each unique individual and each curated deed, as we mentioned. Uh, and both should come to relevant conclusions in both regarding the rotation pathway to follow. And currently, we don't see this world of person-centered care or evidence-based care as two worlds apart, but two worlds that contribute to wonderful care. Uh, we, we need we need to know about the effectiveness. You need to be technically proficient and using a person-centered approach to deliver that. It's a, a wonderful way way to put it. Christina, were there cases, uh, or, or, or are you aware, I mean, with everything you guys uh, look through, where uh, folks seem to be kind of, um, uh, or are you generally aware that, that folks are utilizing perhaps some of this lingo, uh, talking the talk but not walking the walk uh, in person-centered care? Um, uh, are there kind of a, a examples of that or where people seem to be kind of talking past the problem? Um but because uh, I, I understand this is part of your, your goal to kind of put some uh, meat on the bones here and describe exactly what this uh, could and should be, how it actually influences your care delivery, maybe even your model of exactly how you're structuring your inpatient and outpatient programming and so forth versus uh, kind of just some, some window dressing that makes it look as if uh, you're kind of incorporating uh, more uh, of the individual direction than you really are. Um, <laughs> this is a terrific question and it's, it's difficult to answer, um, exactly, but I'll do my best. And my answer to you in this moment is to say that in my experience of reading the literature and doing actual empirical collection of data from different kinds of rehabilitation environments and settings, I have found the general to be the case that rehabilitation practitioners believe deeply that they are doing person-centered care. However, the devil is in the details, if that's an allowable expression in our days. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. We don't have very good tools to measure person-centered care. We don't have very good tools to figure out how to implement person-centered care. And so there are multiple flavors, which is okay. And there's multiple ways in which people do things, which is okay, because they are adaptive to environments. However, people often in rehab, who work in rehab, come to, well, we're doing it already. What, what, what are you talking about? And so <laughs> there is a little bit of resistance, therefore, for papers like the ones we are bringing forth or for the kind of work that we're trying to do at the practical practice and conceptual level, because people think they are already doing it, but I don't think they're already doing it for it. They're and not. Some, some of the literature that gave rise to this was an empirical literature was that practitioners are rating their practice as more person-centered than their patients or care Correct. recipients who are dealing. Correct. The so. patients are not always content with some pieces of their care. Even though, even though care. practitioners believe they are delivering such an approach, their patients, or in this case, their person-centered, their persons, the person-centered don't really think that's the case. 
And Fascinating. Re- okay. really one of the things that was extracted was that to really change the scenario, we need to challenge the assumption that we, and I'll use a collective we, are already person-centered as much as we could be. And, mm-hmm. and for any improvements to occur, we need to, to step away from that assumption. And eventually the idea is that uh, because it's adapted, it's very complex to achieve. We are never quite there. You can be closer to there, but we are never quite there. And to assume that we are not quite there, it's, it's probably the, the first thing to be done for an improvement to occur. If you believe that you are ready, person-centered, uh, you are not going to, to develop any improvement activity to adapt. But the first problem is, okay, but what is it? Yes. Person-centered. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to address in this work, because we, we believe we are a thing that you are n- unable to define. Uh-huh. So it's, yeah, it's very and, difficult to deconstruct all this assumption without first really defining what it is. And, and after defining what it is, it's, it's probably more certain for me to look at the whole model and say, well, we don't do all this stuff perfectly every day down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to remain uh, and working and working with people. That's part of what makes what makes it interesting. I mean, this you know, it's not this is not software. Uh, it's not a factory that's making human. widgets. That's human interaction. Uh, it's, it's humans. It's yeah. human interaction. And, it's it's never. Yeah. We are not perfect every day of our lives, and certainly not in our practice. So uh, 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 it is subject to failure to continuous learning. And one of the categories addressed this issue, uh, we need to respectively, retrospectively look at our practice, trying to learn from that what went wrong, what could have been better. If you assume that we are already doing it perfectly, it's really the first thing to be challenged. Because but I it's important no to remember, it's not just the practitioner right but mm, it's yeah. also the environment within which it takes place so in many mm. places that may be uh, seen or uh, are actively doing as as tiago mentioned earlier quality improvement it's the idea is also what kinds of systems right are not working what kinds mm-hmm. of practices that are larger than an individual practitioner are working or not working so being person centered means being also provider centric right are we providing Uh, Are we offering trainings and education to providers? Are we creating systems of support for providers so that they can be person-centered? Is the organization, the institution within which all of this work takes place, is it creating an atmosphere, a culture of person-centeredness? So all of these pieces are important. uh, Tiago and I feel passionate about making sure that, I think that's true, Tiago, if I speak for both of us, that we feel it's important that we understand person-centeredness not to be just in the hands of the provider, the individual practitioner. That's why our, mm-hmm. our model, right, creates the, the sort of the concentric circles that are working to understand the context within which it all, it all is relevant. And, and I guess that's quite right. And making a bridge eventually to the future, it's, this is not a one-off for sure mm-hmm. product. It's probably the first step in a long road to use person-centeredness as an element for improvement. And it also involves organizations. And interesting that for the future, for the, the project I'm starting now, it's exactly trying to building the organizational conditions for quality improvement activities on person-centered care to occur systematically 
and for providing all the organizational char characteristics and processes and structure for that to happen in a regular basis. So it's not only for the frontline staff, it's a responsibility for frontline staff, for managers, for healthcare leaders and organizations, and, uh, mm -hmm. and for researchers as well to support that process and to do it at the multiple levels that we have identified in our, in our model. Well, Tiago, Christina, we could go on talking about this for, for some time. Uh, I, I do, uh, uh, it is a fascinating uh, work. And as, as you mentioned, uh, organizations are going to be important, maybe even accrediting organizations. I know one of you, for example, has uh, worked with CARF before as well. I could see uh, perhaps uh, uh, that organization, others kind of uh, look rating folks the degree to which they are really person-centered uh, and, and so forth. Uh, uh, it sounds like both of you could uh, could perhaps even serve as program consultants to, to a certain extent in, in this regard. I encourage everyone to read the paper in the journal. Um, uh, it uh, uh, offers great, great detail. And uh, I think there's a, there's a lot to learn. And it sounds like there's going to be more coming out from both of you uh, in the future in this regard. And I, I hope to see it in, in, the, in the pages of archives of PM&R. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast, we have Dr. Elizabeth Paspinoichka. Dr. Paspinoichka is Clinical Research Program Manager at the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center. She and her colleagues there have authored original research in the archives of physical medicine rehabilitation on cognitive profiles among individuals with spinal cord injuries, uh, predictors, and relations with psychological well-being. Dr. Paspinoichka, thanks for joining us in the Rehab Cast today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, um, you know, this is uh, uh, definitely in the category of, of big, important uh, questions uh, to be asked. As, as you point out right at the outset, you know, generally understood that there's a fair amount of uh, some uh, neuropsychological impairment seen in the SCI population. I think a lot of us perhaps uh, uh, believe that to be perhaps related to these traumatic injuries and the coincident uh, traumatic brain injuries and so forth. Um, uh, regardless of, uh, of the etiology, um, uh, we know it's, it's important, and your study is kind of starting to dig into just how, how important uh, that is. Um, uh, uh, where, do, where did you and your colleagues come up with the idea for, um, for, for this study and designing it this way? Uh, so several years ago, uh, Dr. Kazuko Shem, who's an SEI physician and the senior author on this work, she became interested in investigating rates of concomitant TBI among individuals who have spinal cord injury during acute rehab. Uh, in her clinical experience, cognitive impairment was relatively common, but often undiagnosed and untreated mm. because SCI tended to be the more emergent medical concern during acute rehab. And so she began this moderately sized research study that enrolled 92 individuals who had both traumatic and non-traumatic spinal cord injury during acute rehab to look at cognitive impairment. And when the work first started, uh, expected that individuals who have traumatic spinal cord injury would have greater cognitive impairment than those with non-traumatic spinal cord injury. And this assumption was because external forces that lead to spinal cord injury can often lead to a TBI and higher rates of cognitive impairment. But when we looked at the data, uh, the supposition wasn't really quite what we thought it would be uh, because there was evidence of cognitive impairment regardless of whether people 
had a traumatic or non-traumatic spinal cord injury. And so this motivated looking at the data a bit differently and thinking that cognitive impairment might not fall cleanly along the lines of traumatic versus non-traumatic injury. And the literature actually does suggest that a substantial number of people who have non-traumatic SCI um, and no history of TBI have cognitive impairment. And so some of the reasons for this might be uh, because of pathophysiological uh, reasons like inflammation, uh, secondary complications that might occur following spinal cord injury, uh, hypoxia or mm-hmm. neuroatrophy of the brain following SCI. Or perhaps just the incredible stress of the event, too, one, one wonders. Um, uh, you know, it's fascinating because there's been a distinction in the, in the literature for some time but, uh, between kind of dual diagnosis, uh, spinal cord and uh, traumatic brain injury versus kind of regular old either one uh, TBI or spinal cord injury, but generally more in reference to uh, SCI. And um, generally recognize that, that folks with an official dual diagnosis, like, you know, perhaps uh, imaging findings in TBI, or at least coming into the rehab center with that diagnosis as well, um, that, you know, this, this rehab is going to take a little bit longer. The outcomes might not be quite as good and so forth. But um, uh, really, uh, you know, you can be dual diagnosis and, and non-traumatic as well. I guess, you know, with the magnitude of the various medical events that are causing uh, spinal cord injuries, um, uh, oftentimes uh, secondarily to, to big uh, systemic uh, uh, illnesses and sepsises and so forth. Uh, uh, these, these are generally resulting in a lot of CNS stress generally, it appears. Yeah. And they may also be treatment-related factors. So it may be the medications, um, or it could be mm-hmm. pain and poor sleep contributing to uh, cognitive impairment or lower cognitive functioning within the context of acute rehab. So there are multiple reasons that individuals who have acute spinal cord injury uh, might be exhibiting poor cognitive functioning uh, at the time. Um, so one of the things that we began to consider in looking at this mixed group of individuals who have these different injury etiologies is that there may be unobserved or latent subgroups of individuals who have different levels of cognitive functioning. And so we used a technique called latent profile analysis. And this is analogous to latent class analysis, um, except the types of indicators that you use uh, uh, don't have to be dichotomous. They can also be continuously measured. So we used latent profile analysis to identify individuals with different patterns of cognitive functioning based off of their scores on the measured cognitive variables. So uh, latent profile analysis, like latent class analysis, can pass out the heterogeneity and identify the latent subgroups um, of individuals who who share similar features. And so we were motivated then to look and see uh, within these individuals with acute spinal cord injuries, whether there were specific patterns of cognitive functioning, and then also to relate the patterns of cognitive functioning to psychological well-being later on, six months uh, after the study, when they're home and back in their setting. Mm-hmm. So at the six-month mark, uh, the PHQ-9 was done, but mm-hmm. R-bands was not done again. That was just in the original? Yes. The... Yeah. We had intended on collecting the R-bands um, as well afterwards. So we have these two mm-hmm. time points to see whether there's any change, but it was difficult to get individuals to come back. Sure. Uh, and so uh, we only really had the self-report measures of HQ9 and life satisfaction. Makes sense. Okay. 
And with these profiles, we were also interested in examining whether there were any injury-related characteristics that might be associated with being in a class of individuals with better or worse cognitive functioning. And so we examined covariates of cognitive functioning in these latent classes. And uh, what we found was that there were three classes of individuals with differential patterns of cognitive functioning. So the majority of individuals actually had good or intact cognitive functioning. So that was about 54% of the study participants. But there was also a considerable group of individuals who had delayed memory impairment and another class of individuals who had impaired cognition across multiple domains. And uh, just for ease of uh, referencing these classes, we called the class of individuals who had no cognitive impairment class one, the class of individuals who had uh, delayed cognitive functioning or late memory impairment class two, and then the class of individuals who were impaired across uh, multiple domains class three. And we found that when we look at the pre-injury characteristics, individuals with high school education or less, history of substance use, history of smoking, and also those who had greater post-concussive uh, complaints during the acute rehab were more likely to be classified in that class three or the class of individuals with uh, impaired cognitive functioning across the board compared to uh, being in class one, so having uh, normal cognitive functioning. Um, out of uh Curiosity, uh, I didn't see it in, in there, but was there uh, any discussion or consideration of asking folks whether they were involved in any type of um, litigation uh, related to their to their spinal cord injury? Um, I, I know there's a large body of prior research suggesting that um, uh, that can uh, potentially affect some subjective outcomes. Um, that's a good point. Uh, no, we didn't uh, ask or collect data on uh, whether there were any pending litigations or if uh, the, they had uh, workers uh, comp paying for mm. acute rehab. In general, because they knew that this was study-related and not related uh, to the care that they were receiving or um, any wouldn't be related to any benefits they might receive outside of the study, we imagine that most people would uh, not have that as a motivation to alter either their responses uh, on the self-report or to deliberately change their pattern, mm-hmm. what we might see on the, on the yeah. uh, But that is a possibility. Uh, another in- interesting thing to consider that, uh, you know, uh, I guess could, could be asked if we had that second R bands as well, if there were some folks whose R band scores significantly improved, like got them from three back into the one category or something like that, and, it, and, you know, whether those if those folks still had perceived generally worse outcomes, you wonder if maybe they needed more time on the front end um, and uh, could have had a better outcome, like didn't achieve as much in their early rehabilitation because maybe that, you know, they had some some uh, neuropsychological impairment. It's gone to improve with time. But, um, uh, you know, that, that that would be one interesting question to ask. Or conversely, if the R bands uh uh, you know, uh, you know, was uh, getting worse uh, over over time, and and how that might influence or what people's out- outcomes uh, were. I mean, it's expected to be potentially fluctuating a little bit more so in the other direction. I would think from directly hospitalization, acute medical event, trauma, and so forth, and then might improve a bit over time, but improve better for some people versus others. Mm-hmm. You know, more more normally what you might expect is perhaps the subpopulation of folks whose R bands went on to improve 
maybe would, would be those amongst the group reporting better better outcomes, uh, maybe. But. Yeah, no, that's definitely uh, some, a consideration that there would be some individuals who would have resolution of some of the symptoms or complaints that they were experiencing closer in time to injury. And then as they go home, they gain better functioning across multiple domains. And unfortunately, we aren't able to uh, examine in this study what patterns of cognitive functioning look like over time. Uh, yes, so, uh, like some people who might stay stable, uh, some people who might improve, and maybe some people who decline. Those would be really interesting questions to look at and try and elucidate in future work. We do know that from uh, other studies, though, that cognitive impairment isn't just a feature of acute spinal cord injury. Even in the chronic phase of injury, uh, the, the rates of cognitive impairment uh, remain high. So mm. variable estimates uh, suggest chronic impairment may be up to 60% across both acute and chronic SCI. And uh, there's one study that looked at individuals with chronic SCI, and they found that uh, individuals with, spinal, with chronic spinal cord injury had about 13 times greater rates of cognitive impairment than uh, matched controls. And mm. looking at a very long view, there may be cognitive impairment um, might be a proclivity for other types of impairment later on, like de dementia. So there are studies that are beginning to look at higher rates of uh, dementia among individuals with spinal cord injury. So there are definitely some vulnerabilities to cognitive well-being, both acutely as well as uh, very long-term among individuals with SCI. Um, other practical considerations of, of these findings, which um, uh, you know, generally showing this class three group reporting um, uh, 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 worse outcomes on that PHQ nine, uh, would be the importance of of doing right, universally. Although you discuss, it might, it might not seem practical to do universally, but some neuropsychological screening for folks. And one wonders if if it's even important to do you know, on the front end at the time of referral to rehabilitation in order to perhaps get a longer length of stay, you know, discussing with various payers and, and so forth. This case is going to take a little bit longer. It's going to take longer for them to learn and to do the rehabilitation and, you know, it's definitely a higher risk of a worse outcome here and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, uh, uh, that, that certainly comes to mind. Yeah, no, definitely. It would be ideal if there were more broad screening of cognitive functioning and also psychological well-being uh, within acute hospitalization to try and limit the effects that uh, these concerns might have on functioning of people go back home. There are mm -hmm. definitely a lot of uh, new skills and knowledge that have to be acquired during hospitalization to uh, limit complications and improve functioning. And if uh, individuals who might be at risk for poorer outcomes can be identified sooner, they can get more targeted interventions, and then hopefully set them up for doing better when they leave the hospital. Yeah. Well, important work, fascinating, uh, particularly for, for me with regards to kind of, I just feel like it, it explodes a little bit, this whole, uh, you know, idea of the, of the major significance of this special category or subcategory of dual diagnosis to a certain extent, given how broad uh, uh, this problem is in the, in the spinal cord injury uh, population. This study certainly reinforces uh, that uh, uh, to the reader, um, and uh, definitely everyone working with the, with this uh, uh, population be well attuned to check out this paper um, from Santa Clara Valley. Um, uh, Dr. Pashpanoika, thank you for your time today. No, thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. 
And that's it for this 40th episode of the Rehab Cast. Please click like on your podcast app and take a moment to send this show to a friend or colleague. Until next time. Thank you.